Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Lamp. I'm your host, James Lampion. And my guest today is a returning guest, and we're going to have a great conversation about race relationships. Mr. Jay Foster, thank you for joining me. Uh, thanks for having me, man. I appreciate it. Big fan of the show. Man, thank you so much. So we we having this conversation because it's funny how it came about. Um, I'm not big on race talk, um, but... I reached out to you about something and you had some great points and you made me, you wanted a few people who made me think about my stance in talking about race relations. So I said, you know what? Mm-hmm. I think this would be a good brother to have this conversation with recorded. So I appreciate it. Oh, I appreciate you. it. Nah, man, I appreciate the opportunity, man. You know, anything to move the needle forward. man. So tell me where you at today with the current climate. Um, um, hopefully optimistic um i think that i've seen things recently that uh i wouldn't have expected to see in my lifetime um and to give you a little bit of context like my father um god rest his soul um died last year and he uh lived to be 80. so his father my grandfather was a slave and my grandmother was a slave um and they grew up in uh, South Carolina. They migrated up to, to Baltimore, uh, started their life here. My mother is from North Carolina, but uh, she actually is the descendant of slave owners. So the two of them actually intermingling together um, to combine to create me, <laughs> um, created a situation where I had a lot of historical context and a lot of um, real-world experiences from the lessons of my father and my mother on how to navigate through society and in this world. And a lot of times we found that in those conversations, we were interacting with um, with different races, different cultures, Black, white, um, uh, Latino, uh, you know, various different spectrums of the world. And my mother was really, really big, and my father too, was really, really big on exposure, uh, making sure that you um, go into a situation with an open mind, uh, open heart, and to understand kind of the perspective of the people that you're dealing with. So in today's climate, I'm seeing things that I would have never imagined seeing, like protested, protests that last weeks, if not months, um, a huge, uh, coalition of different races involved. Um, a lot of listening and, and empathy and understanding um, I'm seeing take place, at least on the initial. Um, and I'm seeing a lot of uh, cultural conditioning uh, mechanisms like stat- Confederate statues, um, uh, names of buildings, things of that nature are starting to be renamed or at least uh, the statues have been taken down and stuff like that to remove that kind of psychological um, oppression uh, from people uh, and allowing for creative, more forward thinking uh, voices to be heard and to, to progress. So I'm hopefully optimistic. I know that there's some, some more difficult issues that probably need to be addressed that would help um, move the situation or move the needle even further, um, but to have the dialogue, have that conversation, and people willing to understand that 
okay, because it didn't happen to me, doesn't mean it doesn't happen. Uh, those kind of conversations are, are what's making me hopeful and, and kind of optimistic of the changes that I'm saying. Now you mentioned your, did you say your grandfather was a slave? Yeah, grandfather was a slave. Wow, that's not, that's not far removed at all. We talking about, what, the generation two? Yeah, yeah. I mean, and, and you, and uh, to consider it, like my grandfather was a slave and part of my life, my father was, this is what, he was born in 1939. Mm -hmm. So you talking about, they are starting to just transition out of slavery when he's born. By the time he's 20, he's in the civil rights movement, you know, in, in the South. He still lives, he still lived in South Carolina at the time. And then as he becomes a, you know, an older man and more of an adult, then he, you know, moves to Baltimore and starts his life and so on and so forth. And I got both spectrums of it because my mother's lineage is from a slave owner. So my mother's not white, you know, she, her, um, her uh, heritage kind of intermingled during slavery time. But, you know, I, I have a lineage where my mother is a descendant of a slave owner and a father who's a descendant of a slave. So I'm getting both perspectives and both pieces of culture as I'm growing up and they made sure to instill in me and my siblings that kind of education to understand like, okay, your perspective as a black man is going to be different, but you also need to understand how to move and navigate in society, maybe even, I dare use the word code switch at certain times, just to make sure that you survive to get your, to move the needle forward. Um, through education, through dialogue, through um, through perception, uh, what have you, so that people would feel more comfortable and more uh, amped to uh, kind of um, segue their perspective uh, because they know somebody who is of a different culture, a different race, of a different creed. I want to hit on a key term that you mentioned. You mentioned... Yep code switching is that something you find yourself doing a lot <laughs> uh, <laughs> a lot um so for me it's more so of the the fact that at least in this particular climate and i'll compare historically and and right now historically we would have to code switch just to survive so if you knew how to read as a slave you couldn't say that you knew how to read because you had to survive you couldn't um, express your thoughts or your opinion because you had to make your master comfortable or, you know, make them feel, make a person feel non-threatened, right? So you would do things and say things that are not naturally in your character or reflective of your opinion just so that somebody else could feel comfortable. And I feel like at least now in the society, people are more open and identify more that, oh, you are doing that because it's not necessarily reflective of who you are as a person, but you're just doing this to break down my defenses so that way I can feel comfortable. And I don't feel as though that's completely wrong, but there has to be some kind of trade-off of fairness and open dialogue to say, hey, look, man, that's what you said is wrong. Or what you said is, is 
lacking perspective or context or sounds racist or something to that effect. And I wouldn't continue to have that. I wouldn't continue to use that kind of dialogue if I wasn't somebody who, you know, cared or, or understood or, or tried to, uh, you know, give the opportunity for somebody to correct themselves. You say the wrong thing in the wrong community, it's not going to look too favorable for you or your consequences, right? So uh, my parents, as well as, you know, uh, I've been blessed to have a lot of strong individuals in my life, um, allowed me to understand that words matter and, and holding people, making an acknowledgement, uh, having a sense of empathy and being loyal are really key pillars to move in a, a person's uh, um, perspective or switching a person's perspective to someone that, that from a closed mind to a more of an open mind. Um, and when they start to relate to, oh, I know somebody who, who I'm talking bad about, then the con their whole mind gets blown, so to speak. So um, when they say, okay, well, um, you know, when I, I hear a lot of, you know, Caucasian people say, oh, I have, I have a black friend. Like, if you can count them, then they're not really your friends. <laughs> and, you know, the kind of undertone that that kind of phrase takes um, and giving them the opportunity, the, the, taking the opportunity to educate them on why somebody like myself or you or others may find that sentiment or that phrase to be offensive, right? Uh, because I don't basically go around my black friends and say, hey, look, man, I know one white guy and that's my friend. So I'm good. I admit that can't, that absolves me of being racist. Like, no, that, that means you are racist because you're, you're singling out one particular person based off of their race alone, not just, oh, I have a multi, uh, a, um, uh, diverse group of friends, right? Yeah, um, and just, or, you know, my friend is James, my friend is John, my friend is Mike, my friend is Jay, you know, whoever. Um, you're you're basically singling them out because of their race, which makes you kind of racist. <laughs> <laughs> now, I, I've made it clear. I'm like, I, like I said, I made it clear. I'm not comfortable having the race conversation. I don't like having it. But mm -hmm. you're actually one of the ones who comfortable doing it. And the little bit we have talked about it, you mm -hmm. actually have a great perspective on it. So I just wanted to know what makes you so comfortable talking about it? Um, mainly for two reasons. One is because I've grown up um, with my parents. They gave me a lot of exposure, a lot of context, um, and a lot of different perspectives. They kind of put me in various situations. So I went to what would be a predominantly black school uh, in elementary school, and I went to a private school, which was predominantly white, in the same kind of phase of my life. Um, middle school did the same thing, went to a predominantly black school, went to a predominantly white school. High school was predominantly black, and then I went to college because my mother, uh, <laughs> uh, my mother and my father really, really stressed education, um, so I had to go to an HBCU. No, no end of discussion. Right. Um, actually, all of her kids had to go to HBCU. It was a non-negotiable. Um, and through the, my experiences when I was younger, allowed me to see how white people view black people, how black people view white people, how certain um, the how certain categories of exposure were different. Like when I was in sixth grade, a perfect example would be is I 
In sixth grade, I was learning how to do stocks, write checks, uh, start a business, um, reading uh, the Iliad and, you know, all these kind of Greek mythologies and Rome and how they conquered different um, cultures and stuff like that. I learned that in the private school with very few black people. Then I went to mm -hmm. public school and it was like, can you just add these three things together? Like, do you know, you know, the division, your times tables, you know, we just, we're just starting to do algebra. Whereas the other, the other school was kind of preparing me for, you know, a professional kind of uh, advanced level of learning. So I understood kind of how people were digesting the, the gap between what was being taught in certain institutions, predominantly white institutions, and what was being taught in predominantly black institutions. Now, that would give me, um, and I feel, which was helpful, was that I'm not only book smart, but I'm street smart. So now I have the ability to talk on multiple different levels to multiple different races and cultures on the level that makes sense to them. Um, instead of basically trying to force feed my type of language onto somebody else. So that, that has really helped me to feel comfortable in having the race conversation because like if you listen to rap and that's all you listen to and I try to put you on to some rock music, <clears throat> some rock music and you like, nah, man, I, I am never listening to it. And you're <laughs> completely dismissive of it. Then we can't even begin to have a conversation because you're not open-minded to alternatives or other suggestions or other perspectives um, and vice versa. So we have to be able to have a conversation foundationally on what do we all want to see? We all want to see our children be successful. We all want to see a harmonious, loving environment. We all don't want to feel threatened um, in our day-to-day -day lives and so on and so forth. So you kind of slowly kind of introduce these topics and these kind of ways of thinking to, uh, to the masses. And then once it becomes a, a kind of a symbolic moment, like the George Floyd situation, then everybody is thirsty for knowledge, right? And when everybody's thirsty for knowledge, that's not the time to be like, look, I'm tired of explaining to y'all that I've been going through this for the last 40 years. You know, it, it's kind of like, uh, you know, we, you know, me and you have already discussed, like we both have children, right? And I've told my daughter a million times, like, don't put your shoes over there, put them over here. Don't put them over there, put them over here. And then, you know, she's seven now. If she, if, I've been telling her that for six years, and then when she turns on her seventh birthday, she says, Daddy, where am I supposed to put my shoes? I'm not supposed to say, you know what? I'm really tired of telling you all the time to put your shoes over there. You know what I'm saying? It, it's no different because we're adults. Because we're adults, you know? And you want to give people the opportunity to learn, but learn correctly. Because you don't want their perspective to be warped or misguided by searching for information all over the place and easily get misled because they don't feel comfortable with, you know, articulating the things that they learned. You know what I mean? It's kind of like a, like a tutor, right? You know, if you're tutoring somebody, then you don't let them just go ahead and take the test by themselves. You give them guidance, you give them instruction, you give them uh, objectives, you get them, you give them, um, you know, kind of foundational things to help them take the test well. And that's what I feel like society, what I feel comfortable 
and having these race conversations and doing is that I will give you the opportunity to be open-minded and I'll give you, I'll tutor you and give you guidance on how to best articulate yourself and your thoughts and your emotions and your feelings without coming off as being offensive, derogatory, or uh, misguided or lacking context. I'm sorry, I talk a lot this time. No, no, you're good, man. You're good. That's look, that's what I brought you here for. <laughs> I, look, I, I made it clear that I'm not I'm not the race guy. So yeah. trust me, brother, yeah. it was a it was a great answer. But let yeah. me let me let me chime in with this. Sure. And I want your your perspective on this. So mm-hmm. I grew up in Capitol Heights, Maryland, predominantly black, like mm-hmm. <laughs> in the 90s percent black. So mm-hmm. I went to all black elementary, all black middle school, pretty much. We had maybe, we didn't have, we didn't have, in middle school, we may have had 10 white kids. And then high mm-hmm. school, out of 2000, we may have had, I'm gonna say about 200 white mm-hmm. kids. So I've always been in situations where it's been predominantly black. So, mm-hmm. I think that's why I'm just not used to having the conversation because in my developmental years, mm-hmm. I didn't need to have it. Whereas you went to a school with diversity and you actually was in a situation where the majority of the kids you were around were white. Right. So I think I'm, I'm almost going to say I know, but I just want to say I, I feel like that's the reason you're more equipped to talk about race. Mm-hmm. I, I would I would agree with you. It's that exposure and that um, being able to articulate yourself in various environments. You know what I'm saying? So just like when you know when when I walk in a corporate building and it's predominantly white, and I see another black person walking down the hall, and we all give that kind of head nod, like it was that. <laughs> <laughs> to me, right? And, and it, it was funny because. I was walking down the hallway with, with a white coworker and he asked me, like, dude, every time somebody black walks by, y'all kind of give this kind of like like head nod, like, you know, we, hey, we in here, right? <laughs> um, he's like, what is that about? And I was like, because, you know, a lot of times, you know, we're, we're left out of these opportunities. We're left out of these situations. And because... I've made it to this particular level, which you know some people don't make it to. They appreciate that I survived and I made it up here, and they know that, and it creates a hope that their children or their you know family members or whatever my legacy will get the same opportunity because now we we at least made it here. So now the starting line has now moved, the shifted, or the standard has kind of shifted from what it used to be to now at least to get to this point because now I know it's possible. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And um, what I can do is expose, you know, my legacy, my family members, you know, people I care about, friends and so on and so forth to at least get to this level. And then they can either take it, the future generations can take it further and further and further and further along. So that way the head now doesn't become so obvious. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And um, I remember one time, uh, I was working at uh, Automatic Data Processing. It was a job I had, uh, ADP, the payroll company. And I worked with a very diverse group of, a majority of them were women. Um, 
when I was doing um, tax implementation, like kind of like project, project management for taxes, right? And um, I remember when I left the job to take another opportunity um, at Sinclair Broadcast Group, the one uh, black female, older black female, basically, uh, I was graduating from college at the time. I hadn't had my degree yet. I just got it. And then I took this new opportunity um, to work at Sinclair. And the the black lady, older black lady, told me on the phone, it was one of my last calls that I had um, there. She said, thank you. You don't understand what you've just done. And I said, what? I don't understand what you're talking about. And she said, you just gave me hope that my son, who was maybe about four or five years younger than me at the time, that he can do the same thing if he just follows what you just did. If he goes to school, he gets his education, he gets a degree, then the door is still open for Black men such as myself and you and others to get that opportunity to do advanced and, and better things. So it just basically created hope. So she thanked me for hope. And I'm like, man, that's, I didn't even know I had that boulder on my back. <laughs> you know, yeah. I just thought I was doing it for myself. But when you start to understand that your success, a word of many definitions, impacts so many different people because they're looking at you, they're watching how you move, they're watching how you navigate through certain situations, it makes it that much, uh, that much more palatable or more palatable to be able to to go in those different environments and say, hey, look, I'm confident in who I am. I'm gonna make I'm gonna have this articulate with you in a way so that you feel comfortable and you don't feel threatened, but I'm still gonna get my point across. Um and I'm not gonna necessarily grandstand on some, you know, uh some very strict morals unless they're compromised. Some very strict morals to basically, you know, make other people around me or myself or you feel uncomfortable. When she made that statement to you, it felt, I'm sure it felt good, but did it give you any kind of pressure? It, oh, it gave me a missed pressure. It gave me a missed pressure. And, because... see, that's what, and that's what I'm saying. Like, it's funny because when you hear stuff like that, you really appreciate the compliment but then at the same time, it makes you realize, like, damn, I'm, I'm kind of, I'm kind of carrying, you know, I'm carrying an image for not just myself, but people that's gonna come behind me. Right, and 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 to me, that's all a part of branding, right? You know, companies do branding all the time, right? And what happens is that with that pressure, I felt as though it kept my. Uh, a perimeter around me of things to be noticeable of and not just act on my own emotion, my own thought, my own feeling. Because I knew that there were people that were watching me and, and rooting for me to do well. So like, for instance, like uh, I'll give a perfect example is like when the whole Colin Kaepernick thing was going on. Right. And I worked at the, you know, in the federal space. So I'm like, man, I'm going to go to work and these dudes is going, you know, <laughs> They're going to be flying the flag and all that other stuff. And I ain't going to be trying to hear what they talking about. Right. You know, it gave, I remember that lady's conversation, my parents conversation to me, cause they gave me similar pressure and other people that was cheering for me, gave me similar pressure. 
to basically say, look, what you're doing is not just representing you. And you can't just basically grandstand on your thoughts, your feelings, your values, your emotions, and mess up that hope or that um, that uh, roadmap for other people because you want to express yourself so badly, right? And I think that that's where a lot of people of all races make a mistake. They're so insistent on getting their perspective out without taking the kind of two-second pause to think and say, you know what? I don't really think that way. Well, I thought that way at this moment, but I didn't have context. I didn't have, you know, education. I didn't get exposed to it and all that other stuff. And it becomes real um, hypocritical if you jump out there and say something like that, and then you have to walk it back, right? And then your brand goes from being a trustworthy, I'm a man of my word kind of brand, to one where, man, that dude float or whatever side of the bed he woke up this morning. You can't really put faith and trust in and belief in anything that he says or his perspective because it's always going to change. And that's how, like, I always felt about, like, certain rappers, right? Like, Tupac was, like, all over the place. But foundationally, he always loved Black women. He always loved, you know, um, his family, his people that was in his crew and so on and so forth. And he worked really hard to be able to provide for them. Where you take somebody else who was on the other side of the spectrum, Biggie, right, who clothes was consistent, didn't really touch on a lot of issues that were not of his own, but foundationally they were exactly the same. Loved black women, loved his mom, loved, you know, putting his, his people on and, and putting them in opportunities to be successful, and that's how they lived their life. So foundationally their approach may be different, but the core still remains the same, and that pressure just allowed a a safety net to be more thoughtful in your thought, in your, uh, the way you express yourself, your actions and so on. I will say this doing, because you work in a corporate environment, mm-hmm. um, holding on to so much, being so conscious of what you're saying and your actions it's gotta cause stress. Am I correct? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. But it, it, it really just depends on, what goal are you trying to achieve? What's your what's your message, right? So uh, I do a lot. I do program project management, right? Not everybody is the same. Everybody has different backgrounds, different cultures, different races, um, what have you, right? And if I were to criticize somebody at the wrong time, then they're not going to do their work, right? They're not going to add or contribute to the team in a successful way. If I be super duper passive aggressive and don't say anything about it, then they'll think I'm a pushover, right? So it's kind of like a fine line that you got to really walk, you know, to, to use an earlier term kind of code switch a little bit to make sure that what you ultimately want to have happen happens and what your ultimate goal uh, what your ultimate goal is actually gets executed. So, and for me, the stress comes in, like, how do I still get this person to contribute in a way to achieve the goal as opposed to stressing out and basically be like, man, I'm so confined. I can't say what I want to say the way that I want to say it. 
and be, you know, unfiltered and raw and all that other stuff. Because as you're an adult, me and an adult, and you have adult listeners, that ain't necessarily the best way to handle things all the time. You know what I'm saying? Like if I say something derogatory to somebody in one moment, whether it be, um, you know, personal or uh, abstract or anything like that, I will lose, I could lose that person forever. You know what I'm saying? If I say the wrong thing to my lady or whatever, then we could be headed for divorce. It, depending upon when I said it and what I said, that's a, that's something that you can't come back from. So we all have to move with some level of measure and some level of articulation and empathy when we're talking. So that way you don't you don't lose the you don't lose the message and the, the person receiving the message understands that it's coming from uh, a thoughtful, respectful, um, understanding place, and they'll, they'll receive it as such. I'm going to ask you a tough question, but sure. you're, you're a brilliant man, and I, wanna, and I would want the perspective of a brilliant man. So you. if you were putting a plan together for race relations, what would, some, what would be some of the things you would include in it? Um, First thing I would do is that uh, in order for us to have a conversation to move race relations forward, there has to be an acknowledgement. Um, acknowledgement of what has happened in the past and how we got to this point. Um, there has to be an acknowledgement of slavery. There has to be an acknowledgement of systematic oppression. There has to be an acknowledgement of privileges, privileges and perspectives that are not equal amongst all people. After that acknowledgement takes place, then there has to be some level of empathy, even whether it be consciously or, uh, consciously or sub, uh, subconsciously, those, those perspectives and those kind of things took place. So if you acknowledge it and you're empathetic to say, look, man, I get it. I get it that you had it different and you had it raw and it was wrong and, and I don't stand for it and I don't agree with it. Um, then the healing can begin, right? And you can start to understand and you can start to have conversations about culture and exposure and uh, justification and, and um, you know, different uh, things like that and, and across different platforms, right? And then there has to be loyalty. Loyalty in the fact that I'm going to be committed. I'm going to loyally commit to making the situation better with the information and the exposure that this person is, this person or this culture has now given me to make sure that I'm aware of things that may be implicit or um, implicit bias that I may have or that I may have not considered the full spectrum of things. Um, when I said something or I did something or I named uh, a building after a Confederate soldier or I, I put a statue up in the middle of Virginia, you know, uh, in one of the centralized locations of the whole state and all black, white, and different look at this grandiose monument and have to say, hey, look, well, who is that? Well, he's a Confederate soldier. He's Robert E. Lee, right? he wanted to keep slaves and uh, black people enslaved. Oh, okay. But slavery is bad, right? Yeah, it's bad. Then why does he have a statue then? And why is it still up? Right? 
and that I have to be the the community and race relations have to be loyal to changing that perspective because that's cultural conditioning. It's just like I was I was reading some articles and and looking at some things like you know we don't we don't necessarily understand how much cultural conditioning or being in certain environments has kind of warped our thinking on other races, right? So, uh, you know, a good example is like, okay, do we view white Jesus as a symbol of oppression, right? Hmm. Historical context, you know, Jesus and, and the Israelites and all that other stuff was, came out of um, Egypt, right? And in, in, in that region, right? They don't look like the people that I've been seeing in my grandmother's and everybody, every black person grandmother's house <laughs> all these years. That's not the Jesus that is 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 historically context, right? So it, are we going to change that symbol of oppression? Are we going to change all symbols of oppression? Or are we going to change just the ones that are more noticeable, like, you know, the, um, you know, the, the Confederate statues or, or and stuff like that. So I feel like there has to be an acknowledgement of what's going on. There has to be empathy for how that treatment was wrong. And then there has to be a loyalty to make a change consistently, good or bad. I mean, hopefully more good than bad. Through the good or bad times is what I probably meant to say. Um, through the good or bad times that I'm committed and loyal to this change. So that way everybody is at least treated equally and have their fair stake at expressing themselves uh, in the proper way without these long-standing biases between um, between the races. Man, I tell you what, brother, you, this, the, the, the time we've talked, man, I feel like I've been educated. Because again, I told you, bro, <laughs> I, I struggle with this whole race conversation, but I said, you know what, if I'm going to have it, I got to have it with somebody that's intelligent and can make me think. So I'm honored and I'm thankful that you choose the linear intelligence to my platform, man. Thank you. Oh, man, I appreciate it, man. And I thank you for the compliment, man. It's just, uh, like I said, my old lady probably appreciates that. She ain't the only <laughs> one that gets to, to hear this stuff. But um, I really feel like in order for, it's it's incumbent on our generation to make it better for the next generation. And the only way that we could do that is kind of, as parents, we understand that at some point in time, we're not playing the game, we're coaching. And after we get to coaching, then we have to be general managers. And if we're not general managers, then we have to be owners, you know what I'm saying? Or, you know, team presidents or whatever, because I don't even like to say my owners anymore, right? <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> but it's our responsibility to move the needle as far as we possibly can, so that way the next generation doesn't go waddling in the wind on stuff that we've already taken care of. They can start from where we left off and move the needle even further for equality, better understanding, um, better uh, kind of uh, race relations and so on and so forth. And you see it kind of inching itself in our society now. Like, for instance, like when we were coming up, you called a 1-800 number or a call center, there was only one language, English. That's it. You didn't have other language options, right? Now it's English. Press one for English. Press two for Spanish. Press three for, you know, whatever, Chinese or what, what have you, right? So it's already starting to intertwine and become more equal or diverse across multiple different 
industries and, and platforms. You know, you're starting to see where, you know, generational wealth and, and billionaires and um, people of, you know, uh, of our race, uh, of Black people, basically becoming billionaires, right? You're starting to see them not only become billionaires because they dunk a ball or they rap real good, they're becoming billionaires because they have product placement. They have, you know, brands. They have, you know, management companies. They own streaming services. They own um, all of these different uh, different things. And that gives hope. And just like that, that older Black lady before I, um, I left ADP, that gives me hope that it's possible. It can happen for me. It can happen for somebody else. And once we start to address the systemic things like um, voter suppression and um, those kind of, uh, you know, uh, institutional racism um, and, you know, the prison system and how, you know, a disbanded uh, number of Black people, uh, even though the population, even though we're not in the majority population, we have the highest percentage of African-Americans in jail um, or in prison and what that does psychologically to the black family, right? Because now, you know, you got people that are growing up without fathers, right? Fathers, um, we're not growing up without fathers and that's teaching. And if a black man, black boy grows up in this world and doesn't have a father figure to instill some type of balance or, or um, you know, consequence and give them their perspective, then they're in this world alone and they feel like they're alone. And then they achieve everything on their own, alone. And then the only person that they'll look out for is the black woman, um, and not necessarily pass that lineage or that that game, so to speak, to another black boy or a black man. You know what I'm saying? So it has layering effects when one thing happens, when these kind of systemic cultural conditioning things happen. And we have to be able to address those and understand that the ripple effects or the domino effect is not only at the at the high level where, oh yeah, we passed the law and now you can't do that anymore. No, you culturally conditioned people for years to, to move and navigate in this particular way. And that's why I feel like for us as a, as a black, as a black community, we're very used to survival. We've actually overcome a lot of different hardships and different challenges um, that most other cultures, um, most other cultures, and they, they have their perspective as well, that most other cultures don't have to deal with, right? I'm not the biggest dude on the block, right? I've been dealing with that since I was a kid, right? <laughs> so if I get into an altercation with somebody who's bigger than me, that don't phase me at age 34. You know what I'm saying? Because I've already been conditioned and I've already been practicing for these kind of situations or how to navigate through those situations since I was young, right? So, or, you know, when, you know, our parent is living, you know, my parents are living paycheck to paycheck or not having enough money. So we always learned, even since we were kids, how to survive and how to handle a, a very diverse set of circumstances that were not catered to be helpful to us. We didn't, you know, our parents didn't forcefully or uh, on purpose, purposefully put us in these situations. This is the environment that we grew up in. 
So it prepared us to survive and be able to navigate and be able to negotiate and, and get the needle moved by utilizing multiple tactics. That doesn't happen for other cultures, right? That doesn't happen for, you know, uh, and I'm just going to use this as an example and I will cast any aspersions, but that doesn't happen for other other Caucasian cultures. They already started their finish line at the top. Mm -hmm. I selected what school you went to. You went to the best school because I paid for it. You know, um, you went to the, the, you went to the best daycare lady who spoke 15 languages because I paid for it. You know, you didn't have to deal with, um, bullying or, or some type of uh, constant mistreatment because you went to the school that was primarily focused on academics and education. You didn't have a whole bunch of drug dealers and uh, athletes, you know, freak athletes, you know, dudes like 6'3 in, in ninth grade. <laughs> and, uh, you know, teens who, uh, you know, pregnant teens and, and all of these different social economic, uh, social, social dynamics in your school. It was, you go to school, you get an education, and nobody's going to bother you. And I'm going to pick you up and I'm going to drop you off of school in my bin. And I'm going to pick you up from school in the bin, right? So when I get into a Honda Accord, when, when a, you know, a Caucasian person gets into a Honda Accord, they're like, hey, man, this is so beneath me. No, <laughs> it's not beneath you. Is that you started off your your starting line started way at the top, and and black people's starting line started way in the back, and if it was based on a fair situation, then I wouldn't I couldn't say unequiv unequivocally that this person who you're paired against, if we're talking race relations, wouldn't be more qualified, better, more successful, more determined, more ambitious than you, and that takes a humility to understand the to understand that and and not try to put mechanisms in place so that way you stay in front of the other the other race right you have to you have to make an equal playing field and let the best let let the best people win man look i don't think it's a better way to close it brother <laughs> <laughs> I, look, I'm gonna get you. Look, I'm, I'm, I gotta put it out right now. I gotta get you back on, so we okay. can finish up another uh, conversation. That's cool, man. Absolutely, I, I love it. I like having the conversation. And before, before I go, man, I just want to say, man, look, thank you for setting an example as a black man. You know, going into these corporations and doing an outstanding job, man. I, you know. I really, as a man, I respect everything you're doing and I appreciate everything you're doing because it's opening the doors for people behind you. Uh, I, I appreciate that, bro. And I, I appreciate what you're doing because you're at least giving the message to the people. You're making it available. You know what I'm saying? And that's something that you should be very proud of. You're moving the needle. You're having the conversation. People are having honest conversations with you because I listen to your shows. <laughs> people are having <laughs> honest conversations with you and that's, refreshing because it's not it doesn't it's not rehearsed it's not something that is you know pr driven or, or um you know written by somebody or pre-written or anything like that people are talking to you and you've made a, a comfortable space for people to have those conversations with you um and we're hopeful i'm hopeful and i'm, I'm sure that you are as well that these conversations help even if it helps one person it was worth it you know what I'm saying? And it, 
and we're hopeful that the conversations that you have with different business owners, different people on, you know, relationships and uh, sports and fatherhood, all that other stuff, that it could be a benefit to somebody else because you made it available. And uh, I salute you for it, bro. Keep, keep doing what you're doing. You're doing a great thing. And, you know, I'm going to keep listening and keep supporting the show. Uh, you keep having me back. I'm going to keep talking. <laughs> um, but no, nah, man, you're doing a great job. You're doing a great job and you're moving the needle forward too. Um, that, that is critical in this time is keep moving the needle forward and keep a lot, making the message available. You don't necessarily have to spread the message, but you at least make the message available because somebody Caucasian may listen to this show and be like, Man, that's what he was talking about. That <laughs> code switching. Yeah, I get it now. You know, or oh, he was trying to make me feel comfortable so he could talk to me. You don't know necessarily your impact until years, if not ever, but at least years down the line. So thank you, bro. Keep doing what you're doing. Man, thank you so much. That means a lot. I really appreciate it. And thank you for listening. I truly appreciate it. Um, thank everyone for listening to the podcast again. You all have a great day.